Please turn also to the New Testament. Our text for this morning is Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4. So our text this morning is Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4. I'll begin reading from chapter 1, verse 1 through verse 14. This is the reading of God's holy word. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. May we go to our God and ask for his blessing on the reading and also the preaching of his word. Our almighty God, we give you thanks, for indeed your word is truth. In your word, reveals to us our true state, that when we attempt to judge ourselves by ourselves, how blind we are, it is your word that reveals to us what we are, what we are outside of you, and that your word also reveals to us and promises us who we are in Jesus Christ. Father, we pray in thanks for you have saved us by your mighty hand, that you have saved us by the perfect work of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ that you have renewed us by the power of your Holy Spirit. Father, we pray if any are here who do not know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, we pray that you might do a mighty work, that you would do this work of conversion, that you would give new life. Father, help us to embrace the promises of the gospel, that we would believe upon it. Father, that we might trust in you, that we might call you blessed, for indeed you are. We thank you, Father, that you freely offer salvation to sinners. And, Father, we pray that our Lord Jesus would be exalted and that your servant will be humbled. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Think for a moment about giving gifts to children. Oftentimes on boxes... There's an estimation about age, how old these children ought to be to receive these gifts. Some of these are quite obvious. 
If you're going to give gifts to infants, there are going to be things that they're going to put in their mouth and potentially swallow, potentially have stuck. Uh, various uh, hospitals, I'm sure, have these boards in their hallways of things that they pulled out of children, uh, out of their stomachs or, or out of their nostrils, whatever is the case. And here we can kind of understand that giving children gifts, though it may be intended well, can be taken the wrong way. This is true also as children get older, that you give them good gifts, that you intend uh, for them good. They're gifts of great value, but they can be taken for granted, and those gifts can be despised. A good example of this is Esau and the birthright that he had, that he despised his birthright, and this was considered a godless thing. You realize that gifts to children, it also encompasses God's gifts to us. That they can be taken the wrong way. God's intention in giving us good things can be abused. That Satan oftentimes takes the most precious and the best doctrines, the most encouraging doctrines, and he uses it for for ill. And so often we see that regarding this doctrine of election or predestination. We see that in today's passage here that we will hopefully examine closely. This book of Ephesians was this great letter. And this passage in Ephesians chapter 1, particularly in verses 3 through 14, it's Paul's opening of a great letter with this great introduction. That this, this is Paul basically overflowing in praise unto our God. The, God the, the, the praise that our God greatly deserves. When we think about the, uh, this passage and how rich it is. That every verse reveals truth to us. Every, every word is of importance in this particular verse, in this entire passage. That it presents to us so great a salvation that Jesus has accomplished for us. Notice the repetitions of in Christ, in Him. Uh, notice also that um, this passage speaks about the work of salvation regarding the Father, there in verses 3 through 6. And then regarding the Son in verses 7 through 12. And then the work of the Holy Spirit in verses 13 and 14. You see the transitions uh, when it speaks about each person of the Trinity. In that each time he, it, he changes subjects, the Apostle Paul says to the praise of his glorious grace or uh, to, the, to, the, to the praise of his glory. And we see that God, all three persons, are involved in your salvation. That he does a mighty work. And that his promises to you are sure. So here we have in this verse, Ephesians chapter 1 verse 4, this truth. That God's election of sinners for salvation is in Jesus Christ based on nothing about you and unto your holiness. God's election of sinners for salvation is in Jesus Christ based on nothing about you and unto your holiness. We'll look at this in three points. The first, the basis of election. Second, the timing of election. And third, the goal of election. So 
So we have, first, the basis of election. Even as he chose us in him. Remember here, I warned you how important just a few words were and how much truth God reveals to us in few words. Early in verse 3, the Apostle Paul had just referred to every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ that he has given to us. And this is why we bless the Father. And then he goes into this list of all these spiritual blessings. He talks about election. He talks about adoption. He mentions predestination. And he speaks to us about the work that Jesus came to do, his atoning work. Here, we also have the matter of the forgiveness of our trespasses, then the inheritance that we have in heaven, and the work of the Holy Spirit that is a deposit guaranteeing the inheritance that we have in heaven. Notice that in the first, the first mention of every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, that the Apostle Paul uh, does not ignore the doctrine of election or predestination. He doesn't gloss over it or deny it. In fact, throughout this passage, he continues to bring it up. He keeps mentioning this predestination. And perhaps some of you are wondering, what, what is this election? What is this predestination? Very simply, we look at how we use election in our everyday language. Every so often, there's election. We vote for representatives. We vote for, uh, we vote for congressmen, we vote for senators, we vote for mayors, we vote for a president. Uh, we vote for people in, your, in your, uh, home, your home association board. All these matters is you're choosing someone. So election refers to the right power or privilege of making a choice. And ultimately here, election we ought to focus on is God's authority, his right, his power, his privilege in making a choice. It's not man's. And it's oftentimes in election that that sinners begin to question God's authority, God's privilege, God's right, and God's power to make choices. This is precisely why sinners challenge and reject and are upset about the biblical doctrine of election. is because they're challenging God's right to choose. So for God, election means choosing people who will receive every, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. It's not just the forgiveness of sins. It's about having a saving relationship with him to be his sons and his daughters to save his people and provide, provide us with a great inheritance in heaven through Jesus Christ, including the deposit of the Holy Spirit. So salvation is founded upon God's sovereign choice. What that means is that salvation is not founded on your sovereign choice. I don't know about you. <clears throat> My wife tells me, if ever we go out to dinner... I have this menu remorse, meaning I can't decide what I want to eat. I, I, I pick an item, and after ha I'm halfway done with the meal, I'm saying, oh, I should have gotten the other thing. And, and you think about how fickle people are regarding our commitments, regarding our loyalties. If our salvation 
were based upon our own choice. I'm sorry to say, your salvation is in danger. This should be a great confidence to you and to me that our salvation is founded upon the choice of our God, not upon our choice. I think also, here, so this first statement, even as He chose us, it's God, the Father, choosing sinners. And then the choice is not just choice of a person, it's choice of a person in Christ, even as He chose us in Him. And it's not merely that you and I would believe upon Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of our sins. It's far more than that. We take a step back and we think about how God has chosen, uh, chosen representatives for us. You realize that this is true in everyday life. When we elect a mayor, when we elect a congressman, when we elect a senator... We're electing someone who is going to represent us. Meaning that you elect someone who is supposed to make decisions and choices on your behalf. That's the very purpose of election. We have a representative government. I think even of of how our American government is set up in such a way that it very much resembles the Presbyterian form of government. That we elect elders who make decisions for us and represent us. We elect congressmen and senators who make decisions for us. Way back when, God elected a federal head for all of us. And that person's name was Adam. Romans 5 explains this very clearly. That this man, Adam, made certain choices and it affects each one of us. Romans 5.12, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. So if you have a problem with election, you will necessarily have a problem with this choice that God made, that Adam would be your head, would be my head. Every single man, woman, and child, except Jesus Christ, is represented by Adam. And when he fell, that the guilt of Adam's sin is upon us, his sin nature we inherit from him, and it's applied to all men. Yet here, what does it mean to be united to Christ? What does it mean to be in Christ? Every man, woman, and child by nature is united to Adam. But it's only spiritually that men are united by faith to Jesus Christ. You see the counterpart to that in Romans 5.17. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. So this is what it means to be in Christ, to be chosen in Christ, is that you... You don't have Adam as your sole head. You have a new head, and that's the spiritual head of Jesus Christ. He becomes your mediator. So that your election is in him so that you have a representative. So that his one act of righteousness, die on the cross, his, his entire life credited to you that you and I receive by faith. He doesn't elect us individually. He who is represented individually falls on his own. He who is elected in Christ is received by God the Father, received as righteous in his sight. 
In Christ, you possess all of his benefits. But be warned, you also possess all of his reproaches that we get from the world. Any reproach that Jesus receives by the world, we also receive. We take it all, we take it none. Election then highlights your union with Christ. Throughout this sermon, I'm going to be mentioning the matters of a false understanding of election that leads to harm and a right understanding of election that leads to, uh, leads to obedience. It, it leads to being built up. It leads to our, our good. So election highlights your union with Christ, not your individualism. This very matter, Colossians 3.3 says, For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Meaning that your life and my life, we have to accept it's hidden in Christ in God. Well, what about all the glory? What about all the fame? You don't get it. I don't get it. We're hidden with Christ in God. Who receives the glory? Jesus does. Do you have a problem with that? You and I shouldn't. Because he's done things for us that we simply could not do. He lived the perfect life. He paid the perfect price, the the full price of the sacrifice for our sins that we deserve. Now perhaps this is the point where people jump in there. They say, now, now preacher, now you've insulted me and I'm angered. Oh, I've insulted you. Well, hey, a Christian should not be one who is easily insulted. Right? Here, some Christians simply deny the doctrine of election or predestination. They simply say it doesn't exist. This is, this is unwise. This is unwise because even in this one chapter of Ephesians chapter 1, think about how often God's choosing you, the election, the predestination, how often it's mentioned. So, so we, can't, we can't simply just deny it doesn't exist. Because it's there. And then you think about throughout the scriptures how often it's mentioned. Even we read earlier in Deuteronomy chapter 7 that, that uh, here God explains that Israel as a nation, their election was not based on their size, their power. In fact, he said they were the least. Here, Israel was attempting to say, hey, there's a reason for this. There's a reason why we are elected. There's something good about us. And all throughout the scriptures, the the God that we worship is saying, no, no, no. You've misunderstood election if you think that somehow there was something good in you. Others attempt to explain it away by, by this, it's called the tunnel vision. God has this tunnel vision. He, you know, he, he looks through this tunnel of time and foresees that you will choose him. No, it doesn't work like that. All he would foresee is Romans 3. There is none righteous. There's not one good. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. That's all that God sees outside of his work. There's also this matter of election being challenged because there's a difference between what we see and what really is. I had a friend, a minister, who, uh, who was recently uh, part of a jury selection pool. My time will come soon, too. Uh, I got delayed a bit last month. But they asked him, Sir... 
is seeing believing. And he said, what, what do you mean? He says, well, if you saw a video, is that proof, is that fact? And he said, hey, things happen in a context, meaning if you take a snippet of something, I saw this man hit that man. Well, then he must be guilty. Well, well what was the context of that? And, and, and here, this whole idea, this idea that we have in our world, seeing is believing, seeing, what, there's no need for any, any trial because we have this video and it proves this or that. But you realize, when it comes to the spirit realm, there's so little that we perceive. This is what's called the iceberg effect. The iceberg, based on the density of water, the density of ice, there's about 13% of the iceberg that is above water, and 87% is below the water. Right? Here, this is, this is what we see, and it's not 13%, it's probably far less. What you and I perceive regarding the gospel is, hey, I heard this preacher, or hey, I, this friend of mine shared the gospel with me, or I was reading my Bible, and here I was confronted with my sins, and I repented of my sins and believed the message that I heard. What, 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 do, you, what do you mean that there's this predestination? It's what we see. This is what we've experienced. We only experience that part of it. But it's only by God's word that he tells us all the things that he's done. The things that he did, that he planned from eternity. And, and these are things that we can't perceive. It's only because he's told us in his word. Which we as believers must accept as true. Because God never lies. So that's, that's the part about seeing and perceiving versus what really is. And what God has told us in his word is what really is. But none of those things are really the matter. The heart of the matter, the heart of rejection of this biblical doctrine of election or predestination is that it humbles man to the dust. And none of us like to be in the dust. Rightly understood, the doctrine of election should eliminate any grounds for pride. But you and I, as sinners, we want to be the captain of our souls, the masters of our own destinies. What, you're telling me that the decisions I make are not of any significance? You make real decisions every day. All your decisions are significant. And here, we look. We look at that song we'll sing uh, right afterwards. The phrase, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. That man wants to say, hey, I've got in this hand, I've got my merits. I've got my works. I'm going to hold on to them. And then I'm, in this hand, I've, I've got the, the earthly riches I want to take with me. And then we ask ourselves, well, wait a minute. Which hand are you using to cling to Christ? If one hand is grabbing earthly wealth, the other hand is grabbing your merits, well, sure, you're going to have to have some strong and, and adept legs to, to grab onto the cross of Christ. Here, this is where perhaps as you're talking to people that you realize, no, it comes out clearly. People have said, you know what? I cannot believe in a God who would require that I would bow my knee to him. That 
that only this God is the one who can show mercy and that I would be so humbled. Well, how else will you receive the gospel? How else will salvation come? Who is exalted? It is our God, all three persons of the Trinity. And who is humbled? Rightly, you and I who are sinners. There is no other way. You think about, well, could this message be more acceptable? Could it be uh, more? Could it be more uh, popular if we eliminated the truth about this doctrine of election? Why stop there? It seems like this whole word, this three-letter word of sin, I mean, that's more offensive than anything else. Why, why talk about that? Why talk about a cross, right? Jesus can be your friend. We don't need a cross. But it's very clear. The scriptures say, if there is no cross, the power of the gospel is gone. If there is no cross, there's no death. If there's no death, there's no resurrection. And you have no gospel. Well, we could go on eliminating all kinds of things. In fact, you look at the history of the Christian church, what you have is various groups, various people trying to do just that, just that eliminating things of the, uh, of the teachings of the Bible that we think, hey, they're not essential. And then it always results in you're left with nothing. And we also have what we call the logical enigmas, right, of, hey, the logical conclusions, right? Uh, wait a minute. If you believe in this doctrine of election, then why, do you, why are you called to struggle in the Christian life? Well, why, why do you even bother to pray? Why, why do you share the gospel? Why, why do you evangelize people? Well, to answer those three questions, simply this. God commands it. God commands that we pray. God commands that we share the gospel. God commands that we struggle in this Christian life. See, there's, there's no contradiction here. That there are logical conclusions, right? What are the ramifications of it? But what we do know is that certain things are true. God, God is sovereign. He's sovereign over our salvation. He's sovereign over everyone who is saved and sovereign over everyone who's condemned. That no one can flip themselves from one group to another. Right? That doesn't happen like that. We also know that man is responsible. Man is culpable for his sins. Look at the reasoning in Romans 9. You look at Romans 8, Romans 9, Romans 10, Romans 11. You, you read this passage, and, and here, you, you know you're coming to the right conclusion if you're asking the same questions that the Apostle Paul raises. Because he, he asks this question, wait a minute, well, well, who resists his will? Or why does he still blame us? And what is his response? His response to that question is, who are you to talk back to God? As in, hey, this is where the logical reasoning comes to an end. Man is responsible for sin. We never blame God for our sins. It's like a black box. You know the black box, right? You don't know how the wires crisscross, right? So what we do know is two wires come out the end, and one is God's sovereignty, and the other is man's responsibility. The scriptures teach both. We don't know the inner workings of it, right? So this is why we pray. This is why we evangelize. This is why we labor, right? God says he'll provide the righteous with food. He also said there's a means for that, is that we be diligent, we labor. 
He says that God would, would call sinners to himself. And there's a means to that. He said that the church, imperfect people such as us, would bear witness of this good news and others would believe it. He didn't say angels would do it. He said sinners would do it. And you think about prayer. Prayer is also a means. This person is saved. And so and so and his family and his friends and the church and people all over the country were praying for that person's salvation for 20 years or 40 years. There's means. And so we do it. And we trust in the Lord. There's also the false accusation of unfairness. False accusation of unfairness on our God. Have you ever heard this argument? Perhaps, perhaps, you know, we, we may have been the ones who, who spoke of it. That, wait a minute, it's not fair that God didn't choose so-and-so. Well, first off, we don't know that. We don't know that unless the person dies outside of Christ. We also have to ask, what is fair? We're all represented in Adam. We all fell in Adam, we all sinned in Adam. We're all condemned along with Adam. What is just, which is what we deserve, and what is fair, everyone gets the same thing, is that all of us in Adam get hell for an eternity. End of story. That is fair. That is just. No one can complain. Everyone suffers for their sins that they've committed. And that God's grace comes in. If God chose all that are lost in Adam, if he chose to save even one, we'd say that is grace. Someone didn't get the judgment they deserved. But God saves far more than just one. And that you and I have to be in a place when we say, we desire that our loved ones would come to know the Lord. That is a good thing. But we can never say, God, this person is entitled to your grace. You have, you have a duty to save that person. Because in that situation, we're not understanding grace. Grace demanded is grace misunderstood. God can choose to show his grace. So this is the first point. The basis of election. I assure you the next two points are shorter. Second, second point is the timing of election. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. So the timing was that it was before the foundation of the world. Here, we're reminded that our God is not a last minute. He's not a procrastinating God. He's not a spur of the moment God. He plans these things from long ago. These things were planned way back, before the foundation of the world. He makes his plans from eternity past. We're told that for those whom he foreknew, he saved. That Romans 8. And it's not, a, it's not he foresaw what you would do. The scriptures uh, address that, and our, our standards that we read earlier address this. It's not based on any foreseen faith. Here, what we ought to understand is that the significance of this timing is that this decision that God made, this election, happened far before you and I were even born. Before the foundations of the, of the world were set. In Romans chapter 9, he addresses this matter of timing. 
Romans 9, 10 to 12. Regarding the twins. So these are perhaps the most famous twins, the children of Isaac and Rebekah, uh, Esau and Jacob, right? Esau and Jacob are the twins. And we're told that uh, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. So before they came out of the womb, God had told Isaac and Rebekah, the older will serve the younger. This is a reversal of how things normally work. Normally, it's the older who has the greater blessing. It's the older who is served by the younger. But God shows that he has a right to change those things around. So that before these twins were born, the announcement was made. So also, we ought to understand that when God elects his people from before the foundations of the world, this means it's before you and I had any choice in the matter. Before there was any good or bad in us. As if there could be good outside of God's work. Here, in Romans chapter 9, verses 14 to 16, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. And I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion. So that it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who shows mercy. Here, the idea of the tunnel vision, seeing ahead to what we would desire, what we would do, what we would believe, that argument is completely eliminated by this timing of election before any of these things happened. We have also the goal of election. The goal of election here. The latter half of verse 4. That we should be holy and blameless before him in love. Election should have a particular effect in your life. Look at the way the world understands wealth, status, and privilege. In the gospel here, we're told that we have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. And you think about people who are privileged, people who are wealthy. Uh, You know, I've had officers tell me uh, that when they pull someone over, that the, the young man or the young woman says, Do you know who my parents are? And the answer to them usually is, I don't care. Because they're saying, hey, my, my dad is so-and-so, or my mom is so-and-so who, who's, who, who is in office, right? And, and there's a sense of privilege, hey, because my dad is so-and-so, I get off. I, I get the get-out-of-jail-free card. And you realize that one of the things that Satan does, he takes his doctrine of election, and he puts man into that same condition You look at the conversations that Paul has with the Jews in Romans chapter 2. And he says, oh, you boast about how you you are possessors of the law. That you are the instructors of the ignorant. But then he asks them, you who instruct others, do you obey the law? You who say, you know, do not steal, do you steal? You say do not commit adultery. Do you commit adultery? And, and so here, he's, he's going back and saying, hey, listen. 
all of these truths, these oracles, the laws that you possess, God has given us that truth so that we might be faithful to obey Him. So this matter about election, it's not so that we can disregard God's law. It's not this get-out-of-jail-free card so I can live however I want. Rather, He elects us unto holiness, unto blamelessness. The right view of election, then, is that privilege leads to greater duty. It's a greater duty that we have, that we should be called children of God, that we're ambassadors of Christ, we're representatives of Him. It also is before Him. The holiness and the blamelessness has to do with what God defines as good. It's not what the world defines. Now, first off, you realize that in the world, the standards are constantly changing. So in 2021, the standard of of what is holy and blameless from a world's view would be very different than what was true five years ago or 10 years ago or, or, or 40 years ago. What doesn't change is the standard that God gives us in Jesus Christ because he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. We have also the effect upon which you boast. As sinners, our desire is to exalt ourselves. Our desire is to, is to leave a legacy, right? Leave a legacy of, hey, our, our name's on this wall, on this building, on this street, whatever's the case. The desire is to have an effect. That this person lived a life and he left an effect in the place where he lived, upon his family, upon his friends. You realize that for you and for me, understanding election should cause us to say, not our name, but the name of our Lord Jesus. May his name receive praise. If we will boast, we will not be in ourselves, but in our Lord Jesus. Here is this false understanding of predestination. It leads to pride and belief in self-worth. Are any of you Sound of Music fans? You remember that there was this song, I think it's called Something Good. And the lyric there was, nothing comes from nothing, nothing ever could. So some, somewhere in my youth or childhood, I must have done something good. Right? Isn't this, isn't this a, a secular understanding of election? The very first statement, nothing comes from nothing. That's immediately wrong because God is the one who creates all things from nothing, right? In physics, we have matters neither created nor destroyed. God makes something from nothing. It's not as if in this world, matter always existed. He just, you know, kind of did a a mixing bowl. He took existing matter and he made the world. He made people. No, no, no. He created something from nothing. And then here, this idea of I must have done something good. No, no, election was based on nothing of us. This is what we need to walk away understanding. There's no boast in us. A right understanding then should lead us to humility. Even as John the baptizer said, he must increase, I must decrease. 
We must praise our God for so great salvation. Again, sinners will say, I refuse to believe in a God that requires me to humble myself to the dust. But you ask yourself, isn't this exceedingly great news? People describe the offer of salvation, evangelism, as Jesus is in this lifeboat. He throws out this life preserver on a string, and he commands you to embrace it, right? And you think about, there's all the analogies break down, right? They all break down. But here, they're, they're acknowledging it's like we're struggling, we're drowning, we're in the process of drowning, where we're desperately in need. Well, perhaps a better image is that physically we are stillborn. That's the best that our mothers can do is provide a, a spiritual stillborn, right? That we were given physical life. Uh, flesh gives birth to flesh. Spirit gives birth to spirit. And here it's as if we're, we're in the bottom of the ocean, stillborn for all our lives spiritually. That Jesus, the, the divine diver, goes down, pulls us out, pulls us into the boat and breathes into us new life. And, and then we have suddenly we're, we're breathing, suddenly we're believing. Right? That this, this perhaps, of course, it fails too, but the idea of what, what does the gospel look like? And, and man wants to think, no, no, I, I'm, I'm not doing well, but you know, I, I'm, not, I'm not so bad. Well, the scriptures describe in Ephesians 2 that we are spiritually dead. And when the gospel comes to us, we are spiritually dead, unable to respond outside of the regenerating work of our God. So we think about how bad the bad news needs to be. The answer is the worse the bad news is, the better the good news of the gospel is. So we ask, is the gospel changed by the doctrine of election? And we can answer, the gospel, if anything, is enhanced by the doctrine of election. It makes good news even better. Here, we think also about the matter of a false understanding of election. It will lead to inactivity and it will lead to hopelessness regarding evangelism. This is that whole description about the frozen chosen. right? We're not, we're not called to be the frozen chosen. right? We're called to be diligent. We're called to be hopeful in the work of evangelism. That of all people... We who believe in the doctrine of predestination should be those who are most eager to bear witness of this good news because we actually have hope that someone will believe it. Right? Someone will believe it. That, that, that was Paul's hope, 2 Timothy 2.10. Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect so that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. That He's saying... He suffers all these things, like that the shipwrecks, the beatings, because he's proclaiming the good news. His hope is that he will reach the elect who will believe and be saved. That, that ought to be your hope and my hope too. We also have the matter. You think about people who are dealing with unsaved family members, children, loved ones. How do we do with these children who are rebellious? How do we deal with our, our siblings uh, who are outside of Christ? Well, the doctrine of election 
doesn't kill any of that hope. It enhances our hope. It gives us greater joy and expectation and faith regarding prayers. And we, would, we should continue to pray for them, pray for their, their, uh, their conversion, that they might know Jesus Christ. Think also about the confidence that gives us. Not a confidence that leads us to rash behavior and prideful thinking, but rather the good gifts that God has given us that reminds us, that, lead, that prevents us from despair. That when we've sinned, we have hope. Because God has promised that he has saved the people for himself. Can you and I out the grace of God? The answer is no. We have in Jesus Christ a sufficient Savior. We think also about the idea of gifts to children. That God is exceedingly good. And the gifts that he gives us. These doctrines that are found upon his word. This is for the encouragement of the everyday believer. Who works through the struggles of life. Who has the difficulties even as we get up each morning. The pains and the aches. He reminds us that his word is true. That his promises are sure. And that he is one who loves his people. He has chosen us in Christ. To all of you who are trusting in him. This gives us confidence that our salvation rests not upon ourselves, but, but upon our Lord Jesus, who lived perfectly. That he's even given us his spirit, that we might believe the things that he, has, that he has commanded us, and that he has provided us in his word. This gives us a new hope each day. May we go to our God together in prayer. Our Lord God, we thank you that you indeed are good.